of the Old Testament and yet told them the fact that, you know, most of them, hey, could you guys keep it down in there? We're doing church. Thanks. Bands, can't live with them, can't live without them. (laughs) But he was talking about the fact that because of their idolatry and and then the resultant immorality and then the ultimate expression of their griping and complaining, that they actually all, almost all of them ended up perishing in the wilderness, just not making it, all with good intentions and all signed up for the right God, but ultimately they fell short. And it was a real warning. But he said, we're the same way. We're not better than they are. And every one of us is susceptible to the same kinds of temptations, temptations to worship things other than God, temptations to indulge in our flesh, temptations to complain when things don't go our way. But he said, with that temptation that we have, God always gives a way of escape. There's a way for us not to fall into those destructive patterns. And so here he continues on into verse 14, and he expounds upon the escape route a little bit more. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. He identifies idolatry as really the central problem. And if we are going to escape that which destroys us, we need to learn to run away from idolatry, to reject it, to avoid it, to move away from it. And so he says, flee. If we're going to figure out what this means, we need to know for sure and have our heads around what idolatry is. See, in those days, so often, they would bow down to little idols. You, you know what happened? The example that he gave was when Aaron made a golden calf out in the wilderness, and they were dancing around it, worshiping it, and bowing down to it. We look at that and go, come on, that's not an issue today. But idolatry is much more than just worshiping statues. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. Idolatry is putting something ahead of God. Remember when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. He, he started out with that first commandment of saying, you can't have any other God before me. You can't worship anything the way that you are supposed to worship me. And it's out of idolatry, it's out of the decision to value something more than God that every other sin flows. We saw it happen to them as we looked last week. They started out worshiping a golden calf. But ultimately, that led them into all sorts of fleshly, immoral practices. And finally, that brought them to the point where they were just griping and complaining in the same way with the Ten Commandments. You have the commandment to not have any other God before me, and then flowing forth from that is making graven images. Flowing forth from that is taking God's name in vain because he doesn't have the place that he's supposed to have. And then, of course, 
stealing and killing people and not honoring your father and mother and bearing false witness and all of those things, ultimately coveting wraps up the package of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said the greatest commandment, in fact, it summarizes all the commandments, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. In other words, everything that God has been trying to say is put me first. Worship me exclusively. And anything other than that is ultimately idolatry. And that's what we have to escape from. Because when we start to make other things more important than God in our lives, then we are slipping down that slippery slope that leads to ultimately destroying ourselves, ruining our lives. Every other sin comes forth from that. And the warning is, and as he says, I'm speaking to you as wise men, judge for yourselves, check this out, think about it. He said, if you're smart, you're going to not just blow this off and go, okay, I don't worship idols, but you're going to run away from them. You're going to avoid idolatry in all of its shapes and forms. That's the smart thing to do, to not allow yourself to be destroyed. So, what are the kinds of idols that we worship? We talked about this last week a little, but we can repeat some of it. Material things are great idols. We can begin to value stuff more than God and have our whole life directed by trying to get more stuff. There are other things as well. You can, you can value things like success, and ultimately valuing success is, is worshiping at the altar of pleasing others or impressing others. You're allowing other people to be what decides what's important to you and how you live. Some people will worship at the altar of fun, the altar of fleshly satisfaction, the altar of family. You know, even your family, which is such a blessing from God, it's so easy to put your family on the throne and make decisions not based on what God says, but on, well, what's going to work for our family? Now, that sounds like heresy nowadays, because people, it, it, I'd say maybe the number one idol that people have, if it's not materialism, bigger house, better car, whatever, it's your family. How can I please them? Things have changed drastically just within my lifetime in this regard, I think, in terms of materialism and in terms of worshiping family as well. And the way I've seen it, and I reflect on this a lot when I counsel people and listen to the kinds of problems that they have, it used to be in our culture and our society that there were certain expectations on men and certain expectations on women. And it wasn't you know, it, was, it wasn't something that we spelled out, but you just sort of assumed it. For one thing, you didn't try to get a bigger house necessarily. Most people were satisfied with a 13, 1400 square foot house. That was just the way it was. Most families didn't need two cars. You know, you had one car because mom was at home taking care of the kids and cleaning and preparing meals, and that was what was expected. The husband went to work and 
brought home a paycheck and showed up in the evening and dinner was prepared for him and the paper was ready and, and that was just that simple life. Maybe there were only three channels on TV, so only so much stuff you could watch and the family would play games and maybe a little Monopoly or something like that and that was the simple life. For one week a year, you'd go on vacation. But man, how things have changed is that now you're a bad husband if you're asking your family to live in less than 3,000 square feet. You're a bad wife if you don't have a career going so that you can contribute to this lifestyle. Of course, everyone in the family needs a car. As soon as you get to be, you know, 15 and a half years old, you're entitled to a new car. That's just expected. That's just what happens. And instead of a good husband being a guy that works hard and comes home. Now we have greater expectations that lead to marriages breaking up more than ever before for some of the craziest reasons. It used to be when you heard, oh man, I have a bad marriage. It meant your spouse is cheating on you or they don't come home at night. Today, more and more what I hear from people, and you know, please don't take this wrong, but the number one complaint I'm hearing about marriages is the guy doesn't communicate enough. Seems like he doesn't understand me. Back when people were just concerned with survival, that wasn't an issue. Today, we have all this stuff, but women want men to relate as a woman. They want a, a, woman, a woman wants a girlfriend for, for a husband a lot of times. And, and please, again, I'm not, Ann and I didn't just have a fight about this this week. I, it's just that... I'm counseling people, and I'm hearing people who, who want to quit their marriage, and so often it's because, well, there's something lacking in our relationship. How things change. It's a, it's a reflection of the fact that we are starting to have other expectations and, and kind of an unwritten rule book that places on us this huge burden, and it comes out of idolatry, frankly of seeing personal fulfillment as being my idol or my measurement, or having a relationship that resembles that which they talk about on focus on the family as being, that's my expectation. It ought to be that way. Now, again, I think I praise God for ministries that are encouraging men to learn to listen and to do more than just come home and to have deeper relationships, that's all fine. But what can so often happen is that becomes your God. That becomes your idol. See, the truth is, women, ultimately, your husband's never going to understand you the way you want them to. And yeah, we try to fake communication best we can, but the truth is we're just not wired the way you are. And the truth is, women generally aren't wired to go provide for all these expensive toys that we've become so addicted to. And as a result, when you're doing one thing, something else is going to give. But again, idolatry is taking something other than just who God is and saying, here's why I live my life. Here is what I'm looking to for fulfillment. And if you want to know what your idol is, ask yourself, what do I worry about? What do I get mad about? What is it that I'm striving for, saving up for, spending my money and time and energy on? And as you evaluate your life, you'll realize, wow, 
there's a lot here that I'm trying to juggle. There's a lot here that I'm trying to accomplish. What is it that's putting pressure on us? Ultimately, so often, it's our idolatry in its many forms. And God calls us to run away from that, to do what we can do to avoid having anything except God be number one in our lives. Because ultimately, if we let something else get in there, it opens the door to all the other sins. If God is the God of your life, you'll never complain. You'll never be griping about anything. Because complaining is saying, God's messing up. He isn't doing what he's supposed to do. He's coming short of what I really need. It's a horrible insult to God, as we saw last week, to be complaining and griping. When we complain, it's just an indication to us something else is on the throne. If I'm complaining, I guarantee you it's going to give me a hint as to what my idol is, as to what it is that I'm looking for to give me the satisfaction that I want, that I think I deserve. And Paul would implore us, find the way of escape, get out of there, run away from that kind of a mentality. Don't give in to it. It will destroy you. You will never be satisfied when you're living in idolatry. Now in the next few verses, he gives a couple of illustrations, one from communion and then another related to that from the sacrificial system of the Jews. And he does it to make a point, beginning with verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion or the koinonia of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Think about Israel. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? He's saying, you guys as Christians, you partake in communion. That's an important part of what it is to be a Christian, really, is celebrating the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Now, the Corinthian Christians were really into communion. In fact, when they went to communion, they, they pigged out. It was a major feast. They got drunk and had a big party, and they would exclude certain people, include other people. And we're going to see as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians more on this. But there were also people in Corinth, apparently, who believed that as long as you took communion, everything else you did doesn't matter. We can take communion, and right afterwards, we can go and, and celebrate at the pagan festivals and go ahead and, and eat you know, meat as a part of a sacrifice to an idol because, well, I'm covered. I had my communion. Paul's talking about what communion really means. And communion was something that was commanded by Jesus for us to do in remembrance of him until he would return. Communion is taking the wine that speaks to us of the blood of Jesus Christ and the bread that reminds us of his body that was broken. And as I take communion, I am taking him into me. Not literally, but figuratively. I am saying, Jesus, I want you to be a part of my life. I want you to, to envelop everything that I am. I want you to define me in a sense. 
But I'm also, I don't take communion alone. Communion is always to be taken with the body, with others. And the reason is half of the symbolism of communion, and it's why we call it communion, koinonia, or what we have in common, is we are saying together we are in this together. We are a body gathered together, connected to each other. And when I take of the same bread that you are partaking in, it becomes a part of my body. It literally becomes physically a part of me as it also becomes a part of you and the nutrients from, from that bread that you eat and that, and that juice that you drink actually physically becomes a part of who you are. And so therefore, we are related, even on a deeper level than people who come from the same parents. When we take communion, we're saying, we are the family of God. We are together as one. God has brought us together. And as we partake and we have in common, it's Jesus and what he did on the cross that makes us one in a deeper way than any other oneness that we could possibly know of. And he says, in the same way, the children of Israel, as they would partake of the sacrifices, they would sacrifice an animal and then the people would eat from those animals. They were saying, this identifies me as a child of God. This is becoming a part of me and we are a part of each other. We, Israel, combined, we are one, united by that altar. So Paul is saying, Understand this, as believers, as Christians, as members of the body of Christ, we are to have an amazing unity. But that participation in worship is what actually defines who we are. Because if you are partaking in communion, you are saying, that's who I am. It's another way of saying who you are is determined by what you do, by what you live, by what you worship, ultimately. And so he said, in the way that you are a part of the body of Christ, out of the worship in which you participate, he said, that's an important principle to learn, and the same thing went for the children of Israel in the Old Testament. So it's not just that and other things. Fellowship is really significant, as Paul says. But now he goes on in verse 19 and says, so what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? He figures that right away when they hear him saying this, that they're going, oh, I guess he's saying because we take communion, we shouldn't be eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. See, their reason for thinking it was okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols was because idols are pretend. They're not even real. So now he says, so if that's what you're thinking, no, that's not my point. Track with me further. He says, rather, verse 20, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Wow. That's kind of serious. That... Those pagans are actually sacrificing to demons. Now, 
again, for us, we could make too much of this and think that Paul is saying, oh, all of those heathens were actually, there was a demon in every one of those idols. Each of those wooden idols, each of those gold statues, there's a demon behind all of it. And that's not what he's saying. Those gods were pretend gods. But he said, when you decide to worship at an idol, what you are doing is the same things that demons have done. In the same way that by taking communion, you're a part of the body of Christ, by worshiping the things that the world worships, you are a part of the world in a way that ultimately also causes you to conform to everything that's valuable to Satan and to his demons. See, Satan, what he has tried to do all along, and Peter says that he's a roaring lion roaming around seeking whom he may devour. Satan, ever since he fell, he desires to see other people fall and other people fail. And every time someone destroys themselves, they are following the agenda of Satan, whether they realize it or not. Every time we do something that's destructive to us, we're following along with his plan. But what's this about the demons? Well, who are the demons? Demons were angels who were created to serve God. But when Satan rebelled against God, in that first act of idolatry, really, where he said, I don't want to follow God. I want to follow me. And that's the essence of, of satanic idolatry is, I want to be God. The demons chose to fall with him. The demons were the first idolaters in a sense because they said, we could worship God, but instead, we're going to go follow Satan and do what he has done. Now, all of idolatry that's happened ever since, every time someone falls into worshiping something other than God, what we are doing ultimately is we're doing what the demons do. And Paul's saying, you're in bad company, not the old 70s band, but really, you're in horrible company when you are trying to, you know, you're fellowshipping with God and his people, but in reality, you are partying with the devil and the demons, because what you are doing is tantamount to what they did. You're following after this kind of a standard, and as he says, I'm trying to keep you from being in fellowship with demons. I'm warning you. Now, most idolatry does not seem like following demons. And, you know, most, even people who join the Church of Satan, the Church of Satan doesn't even believe in Satan. Anton LaVey, who wrote the Satanic Bible, doesn't really believe there is a devil. There is a devil, and he's cooperating with them. But ultimately, what Anton LaVey wanted to do when he started the Church of Satan was to do everything that's opposed to Christianity. And so they have all their devil talk and everything, trying to freak us out, like so many of the rock stars and everybody talk about the devil. They're, they're just trying to be weird. They don't realize that there really are demons and there really is Satan for the most part. Now, there are some of them who do. There are some crackpots in this world who actually want to fellowship with demons, 
who drink blood and sacrifices and desire to be empowered by demons. And they, you know, yeah, there are some people who are that sick, who are all occultic and everything. But see, there are a lot more people following the demons than just the people who wear it on their shirt. Because everyone who worships anything other than God Everyone who puts something ahead of God, everyone who violates the commandment, no other gods before me, is in reality in fellowship with the demons. Because you are falling in the same way that they fell. You are valuing what they valued. You're suckering for what they suckered for. And Paul said, that's the deal. That's what's happening. And so when we complain... We're in bad company because the great complainer, the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, that's what he does. That's what the devil does. When we lie, when we're phony, we're playing along with the father of lies, doing, doing what he does. And Paul is saying, look at the fellowship of the faith and understand what communion means, that you have Jesus in common. And then look at who you are connecting with when you do those things that are basically idolatrous. And I would propose to you the reason why he's concerned and warning is that most people who are fellowshipping with demons don't realize it. There are many people, just like in the Old Testament, there were many people who thought they were Jews because they had passed over the Red Sea and said they would obey the law and they had conducted sacrifices and yet they died in the wilderness and they didn't know they were in danger. They would have argued there's no way we're the people of God. But by putting other things ahead of God, well, you could tell yourself all you want that you're godly, but you're not. You're fooling yourself. You're in fellowship with demons. And I would suggest to you that every one of us is in danger of that of connecting our values and what matters to us with that agenda that's the agenda of Satan and his demons. And Paul's warning us against this. Every time we complain, we're fellowshipping with them in a way. They say, amen, I agree. Every time we, we lift a, a finger to say something against one of God's people, every time we say and do things that cause division in the body of Christ. You know, there are so many people who are running around trying to divide people, trying to say, I'm right and you're wrong and all that kind of stuff. It's so easy to fall into that and think you're representing God. And yet, while we are doing that, what God's word said is, that's one of the things I hate, one who sows discord among brethren. That's one of the things that is an abomination to me, God says. And yet how many times in some kind of a spiritual delusion we can convince ourselves that God is on our side when we do the things that he says he hates. And here, that's the point Paul is making. Understand this, how you live and what you do shows who your God is ultimately. And the indication is there so that you can see it. Now, the problem is, we go, well, wait a minute. Aren't we all fellowshipping with demons then? Aren't we all sinning? Aren't we all doing things that would indicate this? Yes. 
But Jesus Christ has provided a way of escape. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But as the children of God, and that's the purpose of communion as well, for us to be reminded of the cross, for us to repent of our sins, for us to admit that we are wrong, for us to undergo a reassessment of our values. When we fall into the values that are more demonic than godly, God wants us to be convicted and go, you know what? I have been worshiping things other than God. I have been putting other things ahead of him. I have been doing the things that he says he hates. And I, I want to repent of that. It's God calling us to run from idolatry. It's him telling us, don't live this way. You don't have to live this kind of a lifestyle. But it's a dangerous place to be, to be in fellowship with demons. Because if the flow of our life tips that way, we are truly in danger. As to what kind of danger, I'll let you solve that yourself theologically. You could talk about that all day long. All I'm saying is, Paul says, when you put something else ahead of God, you're in fellowship with demons. You're doing what they want you to do. Now he goes on to say, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? You can't live in both worlds. You can't do both. You can't say, in some areas, God's God. In other areas, I'm going to reserve my judgment and my decision-making and my power. It's not a salad bar of life where you can have some of God and some of the world and some of myself and some to worship things and some to, you know, and you all add it all up together and I hope the good outweighs the bad. He says, don't mess with God. Do you really think you're stronger than he is? Do you really think you know more than he does? When you buy things that you can't afford, what are you saying? You're saying that I know better than God does because he hasn't provided for me to be able to live at this standard. But you know what? That's okay, God. I know best. So I'm going to make this happen and I'm going to do it. When you complain about your spouse, you know what you're saying? God, you hooked me up with a real loser. You didn't know what you were doing. But God, I love you, so please, can I trade this one in and find another one that's better? Who's on the throne? Who's God in your life? When you make decisions that go, well, I feel like God wants me to do this, but on the other hand, my family would never go for that. Who's God? Who are you trying to please? When what you worry about is making other people happy with what you're doing instead of answering to God alone, you're doing something that Paul says, you cannot do that. God won't play if you want to have a divided heart. God won't allow you to go, yes, I need a little idolatry and a little God, and it'll all even out. 
Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. You're going to end up either loving one and hating the other, being loyal to one, despising the other. Nobody can serve two masters. This life is not designed to live halfway. One foot in the world, one foot in the Lord. He goes, it doesn't work that way at all. John said over in 1 John chapter 2, Love not the world, neither the things which are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Scary verse. Really? If I love the world, the love of the Father isn't in me? I don't know, maybe not, but that's what God said. So chances are he was right. I think he knew what he was talking about. Yes, loving the world crowds out God because God will not sit there and compete with your stupid idols. If what you want to worship is worldly success, if what you want to worship is trying to please other people, if what you want to worship is your family or or your stuff, then God goes, I'm not playing. I'm leaving. Don't mess with me that way. Because I am God, there's to be no one else beside me. The great Shema, Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart. It's him completely or him not at all. You can follow all the other toys and games and trinkets or you can decide that you are 100% committed to Jesus Christ. As he says, you can't, Do it that way. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. It doesn't work. God says, no, you can't do that. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. As Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians talks about some of this stuff. In 2 Corinthians 6, beginning with verse 14, we see this exclusive demand that God makes on his people. In verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Do you want to be someone who's received by God? Do you want to be someone who God says, that's my kid? Then he says, that follows making a decision to come out and to be different, to come out from among them and be separate, to say, I have decided to follow Jesus, that he is the Lord of my life. I will do what he tells me to do. No other gods before him. Nothing else to be considered other than, God, what do you want to do? This is kind of scary because the truth is every one of us is fighting against the influence of idolatry in our lives every day. There is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. The idols are all around us. And as soon as you leave one idol, it seems you substitute another one for it. 
It's like people who quit smoking so they just eat more. You know, people who become, leave one drug and get addicted to another one. There's so many idols, it's just really hard to sort it all out. And that's why the only way out, the only way of escape is to flee all idolatry. To just go, I am putting God first in everything. And I don't care if what God tells me to do hurts my career. I don't care if it hurts my bank account or costs me a lot. I don't care if, even if it would cost me my family. Jesus talks about that too. It's, I am going to do what God is telling me to do. I am going to live in obedience and submission to him. See, we spend so much time trying to find out what God wants when the truth is that's not the hard part. The hard part is once we know what he wants, we need to 